Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. My name is Terry Miller. I'm director of the Center for International Trade and Economics here at the Heritage Foundation. And it's uh, my pleasure to welcome all of our audience here in the Lewis Lehrman Auditorium today. And also um, those of you who are joining us, joining with us online um, from around the country and around the world. Uh, we're here for a discussion of the prospects for a U.S.-Swiss free trade agreement. And joining uh, with the Heritage Foundation today, we're very pleased to uh, have the cooperation of the Embassy of Switzerland here in the United States and also Avenir Suisse, uh, which is a free market-oriented think tank in Switzerland. Uh, for those um, of you um, Americans in the audience who might not speak French, avenir is the French word for future. So that should give you the idea of um, the orientation of the think tank avenir suisse. Um, why are we doing this? Well, just a very few words. You're going to hear um, a much longer um, and more detailed presentation, but the United States and Switzerland already have a very robust uh, trading and investment relationship. The goods and service, services trade, that's goods, services, both directions, totals over $120 billion. And um, it's fairly balanced. Um, the U.S. has a bit of a trade deficit in goods with Switzerland, but runs a bit of a surplus in services. So uh, those two things don't quite balance out, but it comes pretty close. And this is a relationship between two um, very prosperous countries, very modern countries, very advanced economies. Um, I, I always hesitate to let the word balanced creep into my talks when I'm talking about trade because I, I don't actually think trade balance is very important. But this is what I would call a very balanced relationship uh, between the United States and Switzerland, despite the obvious disparity in the size of the two economies. Now, there's another important aspect to the economic relationship that we uh, sometimes don't think about when we're talking about trade policy, and that's the investment that uh, people from uh, both countries have um, in, in the other country. And that totals uh, the stock of investments, um, Americans in Switzerland, Swiss in the United States, uh, totals over half a trillion dollars. Um, so you can just imagine that there are uh, huge um, implications 
uh, in that size of investment for employment and just uh, the overall benefit, uh, economic benefit to each country. Well, joining us today to talk about this in much greater detail is Patrick Doomler. Patrick's a senior fellow, head of research, the research program called Open Switzerland um, at Avenir Suisse. He's responsible for topics such as free trade, farming, and energy. He holds a master's degree in economics at the University of Zurich and a PhD from ETH Zurich. I'm sorry, I don't know what that is. What's ETH? Thank you, the Federal Institute of Technology. And uh, he's published several textbooks. After more than 10 years um, as a strategy advisor and head of an association which promotes medical technology exports, he joined Avenir Suisse in November 2015. So uh, let me uh, please join me in welcoming right now Patrick Doomler. Patrick. <clears throat> Well, thank you for the kind introduction and, of course, for inviting us and our delegation, especially over here to the D.C. area here. It is a privilege, of course, uh, to talk to you all here at the Heritage Foundation. Well, let us start with the presentation. If we can have that on the screen. Yes, here we are. Very good. So, first of all, yes, we believe there is a case for a U.S.-Swiss free trade agreement. Of course, there is a lot of skepticism, a lot of things going on here in D.C. as well as in Switzerland. But as you rightly pointed out, Avenue Suisse means future, the future of Switzerland. So we would like to progress, progress into the future having such a deal with our second biggest trading partner. What I will talk about here, you see the agenda, I'll talk about the global trade environment briefly, the economic benefit of such an agreement between the two countries, and then come up, of course, with some strategic recommendations. Well, if we look at the global environment, you basically see there is a shift in global trade flows, especially when we look at the US, Europe, and China. You see here some figures from 2002 and how did that evolved into 2017. Well, yes, there is more trade, but especially what we can see is there are more exports from China, especially to the US, but as well as to the European Union. So something has changed in global trade. If we go a little bit deeper and look into US-Chinese relations, we see that on a trade level, this is the world how it looked on in the year 2000. So basically, the majority of countries all over the world had more trade with the U.S. than with China. U.S. more trade here in black or gray. If a country has more trade with China, it is in a reddish color. If we look at the same map, a few years later, 2017, you see how this has changed. So today, more and more countries, also in Europe, more and more countries are having more trade with China than, the, than with the US. So it seems that China is the dominant trading partner for a lot of countries. What we also see, what we observe in the global, in the global environment, there is uncertainty about the economic development, which of course also impacts 
trade. If we look at the US, of course, you have the US-China trade dispute. Many of that dispute, we believe, is also rooted in that changing roles in the global trade system. We have discussion on a US-EU deal, which paused. We don't know, will this be brought up again? Will they also find a deal or not? On the Swiss side, we have uncertainty about the further development uh, of Swiss-EU relations. You might know we do have bilateral relations with the European Union, but we are not part of the European Union. So we need to update these agreements from time to time, and now such a big, important step is uh, ahead, and there is uncertainty from the Swiss side to actually do this step. So there is a lot of political discussions in Bern going on. And underlying, of course, we have the multilateralism, which is under pressure. This is especially um, uh, important for Switzerland, since Switzerland is heavily relying on the WTO and the trade regulations of the WTO. Well, if I said Switzerland is heavily relying on WTO, well, yes, but Switzerland has also another strategy, not exclusively or only relying on multilateralism, would be short-sighted. So what Switzerland also have, we engaged in a lot of free trade agreements. If we look at the ones where we don't have free trade agreements, you see here the biggest trading partners with no free trade agreement in place with Switzerland. And above all, of course, no surprise, we have the US. Economic benefits of a US-Swiss FTA. What would such an FTA actually bring for both countries? Well, we run a study together with the University of St. Gallen. We applied an economic model based on all free trade agreements that the US has, as well as that Switzerland has. We looked at growth rates of import and exports once the FTA was implemented, and we came up with some average figures, and those figures we used for our economic modeling. What we see already today is, without a free trade agreement, bilateral relations in economic terms are excellent. You see here more and more goods being imported and exported. We see more and more services being exchanged. Yes, the US has a lead, a small lead over Switzerland in exporting more services than it imports from Switzerland. And especially if we look at foreign direct investment, we see a steady growth. We see a, a high growth from Swiss investments into the US. Currently, Switzerland is the seventh biggest investor in the US, having more FDI, for example, than China, Mexico, and some other countries combined. Currently, the current state is around 700,000 jobs, or more than 700,000 jobs, I should say, benefit from bilateral economic relations. We have, of course, goods, trade, uh, we have services, trade, we have the FDI, you see the numbers on the screen. We have also the same for Switzerland, goods and services and FDI going uh, to the US. What we can conclude is that goods and services alone support 140,000 jobs in the US and 180,000 jobs in Switzerland. Well, a little bit more jobs in Switzerland because, yes, we do have a trade surplus in exporting goods. 
to the US. But if we look at foreign direct investment, and we believe you should look at the whole picture, not only at the trade surplus in goods, we see that there are 320,000 jobs being created by Swiss FDI in the US, whereas we have around 90,000 jobs in Switzerland through FDI from US companies. When we look at the potential FDA, I already, um, already said how we did it together with the University of St. Gallen in that economic model. We basically see that this model gives us the number five years after implementation of such a trade deal, we would have created additionally 41,000 jobs. So we see the situation after those five years here, only the trading goods, which would increase the exports from the US to Switzerland, as well as the exports from Switzerland to the US. What we could not calculate, oh, sorry, yeah, this is a step in between. This uh, equals around four times the employment of uh, Hawaiian Airlines or all the employment that currently Roche has. So that would be the additional employment created by such an FDI. And if you look on the Swiss side, this is all the employment that Novartis or Roche have in Switzerland. So it's quite substantial from a Swiss perspective. If we look also at the topic of trade imbalance, I've mentioned that several times before, and this seems to be a, a case with, with the administration in the US that they are more and more looking at trade balances. Yes, there is a trade imbalance with goods, but an FDI actually would help to reduce that imbalance. Based on all previous FDIs, we see that Swiss imports grow faster than exports with the trading partners. And we see from all FDIs that the US has concluded so far that exports grow faster than imports. Well, what does that lead to? Well, the effects, quite clearly, additional trade, yes, but on, based on the current growth rates from the FDI uh, portfolios both countries have, we could actually conclude that the trade surplus will be changed or will be equal uh, by the year 2031. This is just calculations, of course, but again, growth rates differ between the two countries once they have concluded an FTI. So we believe that this trade imbalance uh, could also disappear if we would have an FTI, uh, FTA in place. I said before, we were uh, for, for these uh, 41,000 jobs, we were only looking at the trade in goods because the lack of data is significant when we are talking about trading services, when we're talking about FDI, when we're talking about indirect effects created by a, a free trade agreement. So we could not quantify for services for FDI or for these indirect effects. So there is an upside potential. It's not only these around 40,000 jobs, there will be much more jobs created by concluding in an agreement. What are the strategic recommendations? Uh, yes, we wrote a study. We came up with several recommendations. Let me just pick five of our recommendations that we made in the study. First, we believe it is important to testify that free trade is important, important to economic growth for countries. And Switzerland has a large network of FDI, uh, FDIs. Uh, the U.S. has as well around 20 FDIs uh, 
concluded. So we should both continue on that way, on that way promoting free trade. We also believe that the FDA uh, would, uh, would create a platform, a platform to further expand and deepen the scope. So why not having a smaller, a leaner, a quick FDI, FDA, and then expand that later on? Third, we believe first reducing non-tariff barriers, especially in agricultural good and agricultural good, would be important before actually turning to tariffs. As you might know, agriculture is an, uh, an issue for Switzerland, but it is not the same situation as when the two countries both uh, entered into talks into 2006. I'll come back to that in a second. Fifth recommendation, well, we believe the two countries could create a separate quota for the exchange of labor, because it's not only about trading goods and services, it's also about knowledge sharing, about exchanging labors, about exchanging experts. So what are some creative approaches for opening up Swiss agriculture? You might remember, yes, 2006, Switzerland had to leave the table for discuss, discussing an FDI with um, uh, the US because of our agricultural sector. Well, some of the approaches could be, uh, we could offer quotas for certain agricultural goods. We could lower tariffs only for selected goods, which hurt a little bit less our farming industry. We could declare the origin and production methods to consumers. So in the end, the consumer has the choice whether he or she wants to buy a US product or a Swiss product or another product. We should differentiate between raw and processed foods. So why not having canned tomatoes instead of fresh tomatoes, having a different uh, tariff system for these? We should simplify our tariff periods because we have some tariff periods for fruits and veggies in Switzerland, which make the tariff system really complex. Among OECD countries, we have the most complex uh, tariff system. And we could also introduce transition periods for certain goods if they are part of such an agreement. So all this would ease a little bit the pressure on uh, Swiss farming industry and would, of course, uh, increase probability of concluding uh, an agreement on the Swiss side. If we look at U.S. agricultural exports, here are the top 10 um, that the U.S. is uh, exporting worldwide. We see uh, a lot of soybeans, we see corn, uh, we see nuts, we see meat. If we look at Switzerland and apply these creative approaches, we can conclude the following. Well, with soybeans, I don't think that the market opening um, will have any significant effect on the Swiss farming industry. The same is true, actually, with corn. Why is that? It's GMO. The U.S. is producing soybeans and corn uh, based on, on GMO. Uh, Swiss consumers usually are very skeptical, especially if we take into consideration the labels of our agricultural industry. They often forbid using GMO. So from the demand side, even if we open up the market, I don't believe that it will have a significant impact on the Swiss market. 
If we're talking about nuts, well, Switzerland has very, very limited produce of uh, nuts. So this will not have an effect or is very, very limited. But if we're talking about meat, well, beef, that could be an issue. Uh, but there we suggest why not using tariff re uh, reduced quotas. If we uh, look at pork and poultry, also we could apply a differentiation uh, differentiation between Swiss products and products brought into Switzerland from abroad. The labels uh, are very important in this respect. And of course, we could also grant our farmers a transition period before the market is fully opened for US producers. So these are just a few suggestions how the two countries could move forward and Switzerland actually could creatively uh, solve the, uh, the problems that Switzerland faced in 2006 when the two countries last time uh, were talking on free trade. Thank you for your attention. Thank you, Patrick. That's a fantastic introduction to the discussion. Um, now I want to bring in, uh, we have a very distinguished group of panelists here. Um, to join this uh, discussion this afternoon. And I'm going to start with um, Ambassador Jacques Pitelot. He was appointed as Ambassador to Switzerland, of Switzerland to the United States in 2019, arrived here in September. So welcome, Ambassador, first of all, uh, both to uh, the Heritage Foundation and to the United States of America. Um, Ambassador Pitalou joined the Swiss Foreign Service in 1987. He's held a variety of uh, extremely important positions, um, including as the intelligence coordinator for the Swiss government, as director of arms control, disarmament, and security policy. He served as Swiss ambassador to Kenya, Uganda, Rwanda, Burundi, Somalia, and the Seychelles. Uh, that was all at the same time, I assume. It yes, was, It was. <laughs> Um, he, he also served as Director General of the, um, let me get this right, the Federal Department of Foreign Affairs, uh, which is uh, the Swiss equivalent of the uh, U.S. State Department here, and um, also served in the Swiss Strategic Intelligence Services. Uh, just to give you, um, oh, let me mention a couple of other things. Uh, Dr. Pitalou earned his master's degree and his um, PhD from the law school at the University of Zurich. He's a retired lieutenant colonel in the Swiss Armed Forces, was commander of a mechanized infantry battalion. This is actually one of the most interesting CVs I've ever had the opportunity to, to use in introducing a guest. And, and just to top it off, I want to read one paragraph that he included in his CV because I think it gives you an indication of the kind of individual um, the ambassador is. It says, after having been a witness of the Rwanda genocide in 1994, Dr. Pitalou created an organization dedicated to the task of hunting down and bringing to justice the perpetrators. And he managed to have several of them prosecuted both by the international as well as domestic courts. So thank you for doing that, Dr. Pitalou. Um, our second guest um, is Bill Wrench. Bill's a senior advisor and the Scholl Chair in International Business at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He's also a senior advisor at Kelly Dry and Warren, LLP. 
Previously, he served for 15 years as president of the National Foreign Trade Council, where he led efforts in favor of open markets in support of the Export-Import Bank and the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, and against unilateral sanctions in support of sound international tax policy, among many other economic issues. From 2001 to 2016, he also served as a member of the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission. He's an adjunct assistant professor at the University of Maryland School of Public Policy, teaching courses in globalization, trade, and politics. He also served as Undersecretary of Commerce for Export Administration during the Clinton administration. And prior to that, he spent 20 years on Capitol Hill um, mostly as legislative assistant to Senator John Hines and also Senator John D. Rockefeller IV. Uh, finally, Anthony Kim, my colleague here at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, Anthony's a research manager and editor of our Index of Economic Freedom, one of our signature publications here at Heritage. Um, Anthony uh, joined Heritage in 2001. Before that, he studied at Rutgers University and holds a master's degree in international trade and investment policy from the Elliott School at George Washington University. Um, Anthony's also uh, the winner of uh, one of our most prestigious awards here at Heritage, the Dr. W. Glenn and Rita Ricardo Campbell Award, which goes to the employee who makes an outstanding contribution to the analysis and promotion of a free society. So these are our panelists. I'm going to start with Ambassador Pitalu to um, comment on uh, the presentation. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Ambassador, and thank you to the Heritage Foundation and to Avenue Suisse for organizing uh, this, this event today. Uh, I don't think there has ever been a better time to be the Swiss ambassador to the U.S. because basically I could lean back and take care of uh, photographing my birds in the garden. I'm a bird photographer. Mm -hmm. uh, because, because the relationship is as good as ever and everything is going, going very well. And I would not be Swiss if I wouldn't start worrying because that's what the Swiss are doing when things are, are going well. Uh, so, so right now, if I were to be asked... Is there a need for a, Swiss trade, a free trade agreement between the U.S. and Switzerland? Clearly, we could do without. The trade has been increasing uh, constantly and very well over the past uh, few years. And I am of the firm opinion that in the next few years, the U.S. is going to be the main market for Swiss goods. We are going to overtake Germany. That's the goal. Uh, so, so, of course, if we count the whole EU, it's a little bit different. But, but uh, for two months... This year, um, the U.S. was number one export market for the, for the Swiss economy. This is really new, and this is the kind of diversification that we, as a free trading and a commerce nation, really do need. Now, why am I absolutely convinced that we still need a free trade agreement? I don't think that many countries share the same deep belief in both free market economy and liberal democracy, as Switzerland and the U.S. do. The reality is that we have many countries uh, who are liberal democracies, but not exactly free market economies, and some of our neighbors are very good examples of that. 
uh, or we have uh, countries, one of them has been mentioned, and it's the elephant in the room, uh, uh, that believe in some sort of a free market economy, but certainly not in liberal democracies. And we are, we are heading for a time when, uh, again, uh, countries will be forced to choose uh, some sort of a camp and decide what do we believe in. I think we believe in the same, we believe in the same model. And we need to uh, put our deeds where our mouth is. And it includes creating alliances between countries that share deep beliefs and have a vision of both democracy and the economy uh, that are not exactly winning right now, if you look at the evolution uh, that we saw on the map, on the map presented uh, by Patrick Drumler before. So now, yes, we do have a trade imbalance between the US and, uh, and, 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 and Switzerland. And um, I'm very grateful for the words of the ambassador when he said he is always hesitating uh, to speak about trade imbalance, because in the end, in the end, if we really believe in free trade, it's not the number of goods and the number of objects that are moving from one continent to the next that are really determining. It's how much wealth creation does free trade really entail. And if I look at the numbers, and I'm, you know, we we are we we the Swiss we usually do not brag, and we are not the country we we don't don't practice the swagger, but let's let's swagger for a second. Over the last ten years, Switzerland has invested the equivalent of half a yearly GDP into the U.S. economy. One one has to realize what what it means. It means creation of thousands upon thousands of high-value jobs in the U.S. economy. It means a brain drain that's going for once in that direction, in the direction over the Atlantic. From We are, we are creating high-technology jobs. Swiss companies are paying the highest average wages of all foreign companies in the U.S. It's 100K plus on average. On average. So we are not exactly dumping the, Swiss, the, the, the U.S. market with cheap plastic products. We are creating wealth in this country. We are creating wealth. And the U.S. is creating wealth in Switzerland. We believe in the same principles, so let's put it into action. Now, of course, the other elephant in the room, or it's probably more of a cow than an elephant, is, uh, is, 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 is agriculture. Is agriculture really going to stand in the way of something that's so much more important? Especially when we are dealing with a country that is basically, I'm joking, but the size of two blocks in New York. Uh, um, you know, how, no, no matter how much we open the markets for agricultural products, and we will, and we will, because there is a willingness to, to be much more, let's say, open than, than we, we, we were uh, a few years ago, we are still speaking about a market that's not going to, be, to make a big difference to, to, the, <laughs> to the American farmer. To, to go to the catchwork, what's in it for the American farmer? Yeah, there is something in it for the American farmer, but this should not be the central question. The central question is, um, in a moment when multilateralism is under attack, where this administration says again and again that they believe more in bilateralism than in multilateralism, where we realize that free trade and the free movement of goods is under attack, 
why shouldn't two countries who share the same beliefs, even if they are of very, very different size indeed, why shouldn't they at least make, uh, make it a, a matter of principle to again and again stress what we believe in? So, so uh, um, I will stick to, 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 to the big picture. I will not, we will certainly enter into the details, and certainly we are going to speak a little bit more about, uh, about agriculture, where I think that there is a potential for, for some sort of an agreement. But the, the window of opportunity is now. Now is the right moment when bilateralism is on the rise, when uh, uh, this administration really believes in free trade, but in a fair free trade, and that's what they've been stressing again and again. This is a low-hanging fruit. Let's catch it. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ambassador. Uh, Bill, we've been down this road before, and I think you were uh, there <laughs> as we were um, trying in the past to uh, think about a U.S.-Swiss free trade agreement. Uh, would it be fair to characterize you as a skeptic of this process, or um, what do you think? Well, I'm the designated cranky old man for this, uh, for the, for this <laughs> session. Um, <laughs> I have lived through it. When I was running the National Foreign Trade Council, we chaired the um, business coalition uh, the last time for the free trade agreement the last time around. So <clears throat> we spent a, a, bit of t a good bit of time both with our government and the Swiss government trying to make that happen. And you already heard what the outcome was, which you all knew anyway. Um, I should say at the outset, aside from thanks for having me, it's a pleasure to be back, is that um, uh, it's a good idea. Uh, it's a very good idea, and I don't have any quarrel with the presentation that you've heard or with the ambassador's comments. My, my comments relate more to how the, the likelihood that we're going to get there uh, rather than the desirability of getting there. And I think there are landmines, uh, more landmines than either country uh, thinks about at the moment, uh, and they tend to emerge uh, as the process unwinds. And they are navigable. You can find ways to go around them, but they are there. And if you uh, are not careful, you end up stepping on one, uh, which is what happened the last time. Uh, you begin with, uh, there are multiple, well, there are really two scenarios. Uh, you can uh, have a free trade agreement that's comprehensive and complete, or you can have one that's narrow and partial. The U.S., past U.S. administration policies have been to seek comprehensive free trade agreements. That's what we wanted in the last case with Switzerland, and that's what we've tried to accomplish in other cases. Uh, this administration's policy on that is not quite that clear. Uh, the president generally says everything is on the table when he begins a negotiation. That got him in some trouble with the U.K. because that promptly made the national health system into a political issue there. But... Uh, you know, that's probably the smart way to begin, and then you throw things overboard as you move along. That's the way people negotiate. But as you see in the case of Japan, uh, we at least, for a phase, if for phase one, and depending on how cynical you are about whether there will ever be a phase two, um, we settled on a, on a partial approach. Uh, and clearly, if uh, you want to focus only on uh, industrial tariffs, for example, that's probably an agreement that, with, uh, that could be reached fairly quickly. Uh, the landmines there really are primarily two. One is that uh, is Article 24, I think, of the WTO, which says that bilateral regional trade agreements need to cover uh, substantially all trade. Uh, I think our administration is not entirely seized with WTO rules, but uh, my impression is the Swiss government is. 
uh, and has been a defender of the multilateral system and actually a beneficiary of the multilateral system since most of it is located in Geneva uh, for a very long time. And I think it would be complicated uh, for the Swiss government to agree to a, uh, a structure that is clearly in, in violation of, of, uh, of WTO rules. Now, in fairness, it's a rule that is uh, whose enforcement is somewhere between uh, zero and marginal. Uh, this is a case, though, where I, it would not surprise me if there were other party that complain, other parties that complained, uh, namely the EU. Um, so it's it's something to think about. The other landmine for partial agreement is, uh, in a way, what the ambassador referred to with respect to agriculture, and that's the fact that the consistent message from Congress, uh, led by Senator Grassley, who comes from Iowa, but chairs the Finance Committee that has to review these, is that uh, uh, agreements that don't cover agriculture are dead on arrival when they get to the Congress. I'm not sure I agree with that, but that's the message that uh, has been conveyed. And I can tell you that the USTR negotiators have taken that to heart, uh, and they really believe that. Uh, and so if you want to go down the road of an agreement that will be favorably considered by Congress, uh, uh, the administration will tell you that it needs to uh, address agriculture one way or another. And I think the way the ambassador and, and, and the presentation uh, discussed ways to do it are, are creative, and they could well get uh, over some of the humps, but, I mean, that's for the negotiating process. The, the other course of action is to seek a comprehensive uh, agreement, and there there are other landmines. Uh, you know, agriculture looms throughout as, as a landmine. And uh, I think what uh, the question I had when I met with, with uh, Avenir Swiss yesterday was the extent to which the Swiss government and, and Swiss public opinion has changed their view uh, about uh, concessions on agriculture. And uh, uh, they say they have. Uh, and I take them at their word. I don't have no idea what Swiss public opinion is. If uh, the government says things are different now, uh, that's good, because if they weren't, we'd be back where we were in 2005 and six. Uh, there's another issue, though, that has become more important, I think, in, in, the, uh, uh, in the long run that will end up, uh, I think, being a significant stumbling block. Uh, when I was talking to uh, Dave Salmonson, who's sitting there in the back, uh, when I came in, who's with the Farm Bureau, he said, you know, it's all about the cheese. Uh, and I said, no, it's not all about the cheese. It's all about the chickens. Uh, and uh, by that, I don't mean literally uh, market access. Well, it is sort of about market access for chickens, but uh, chickens have become a, a metaphor for uh, different regulatory approaches between uh, Europe uh, and the United States, and primarily between the EU and the United States, but the Swiss government has spent a considerable amount of time and effort conforming its procedures and, and its regulations to those of the EU for obvious reasons, since they're surrounded by it, except for Liechtenstein, which is not a large economy, um, punches above its weight, but not a large economy. So you have a situation where you have a, a, the Swiss economy, which largely from a regulatory standpoint, meaning health, safety, and environmental regulations, largely functions in ways that are in line with uh, EU regulations. And you have a U.S. approach, which is at variance with that. Uh, tomes have been written about the differences. Uh, the, the, the shortest description is that the, the U.S. approach to regulation f f tends to be descriptive, uh, and the EU approach tends to be prescriptive. 
that is the U.S. tendency, not always, tendency is to say, here is a standard that's applicable. Uh, do it any way you want as long as you meet the standard. Uh, the EU approach tends to see, build it this way, uh, and then it will conform. Um, that's not, those are not compatible approaches. Uh, this is relevant for today's discussion and the FTA discussion because the U.S. approach, and we'll see this with the U.K., uh, although it's not clear which of these is going to get started first uh, because the U.K. can't really begin until it leaves. And then there's the question of, you know, when that will happen, which we don't want to talk about today. Um, but one of them will be watching the other because some of the same issues will come up. Um, and the issues will be the United States is going to come in and say, we want you, uh, government of the United Kingdom or government of Switzerland, uh, to accept uh, U.S. test results, to acknowledge and, you know, to, to uh, recognize U.S. health safety and environmental standards. We want you to take our chickens if we tell you our chickens meet our health standards. Uh, <clears throat> not to mention our automobile safety belts, our toxic chemicals, and whatever else is, you know, relevant in, in the regulatory sphere. That <clears throat> is going to put both the government of Switzerland and the government of the UK <clears throat> in the complicated position of doing exactly what President Trump wants them to do, which is to choose. Uh, because <clears throat> what the, the Trump message is, you have to choose between them and us. And uh, <clears throat> I'm not sure that's a fair, a fair demand, but I think that's what the US demand is going to be. And then it's going to be uh, complicated, I think, for the govern either government <clears throat> to decide uh, what are we going to do in that situation if the consequence of, of doing it is going to be to make it much more difficult. The consequence of accepting American standards is going to be to make it much more difficult for us to have normal ongoing commerce with the European Union. Uh, <clears throat> I think that's not been well thought through by either party. Um, it, well, it may well be the United States decides not to be as far-reaching in its demands as I'm, as I'm predicting. <clears throat> I don't believe that right now, but we'll, you know, we'll see what happens. But I think that it's going to pose a, a challenge for <clears throat> the Swiss government to try to figure out how to navigate uh, that particular relationship. If you want to talk about <clears throat> not only this, but also you know, uh, regulation of services, uh, you know, lawyers, architectural services, medical services, mm -hmm. for example, these are subject to regulation in both our economies in order to have uh, to f increase the flow of services back and forth uh, you're going to have to uh, do something about harmonizing or mutually recognizing different standards this is this is these are not insurmountable barriers I want to be clear about that but they are barriers that are going to have to be surmounted one way or the other and they do have implications and they have implications in this particular case uh, for Swiss trade with the European Union, which is an important part of, uh, of their economy, just as their trade with the United States is important. So I think uh, my bottom line is simply, it's <laughs> like the movie, it's complicated, uh, and it's going to be complicated as this unfolds. Uh, it can be resolved, I think, with, and there seems to be a spirit of goodwill on both sides, uh, at least judging from the discussions I've had, but it's not going to be simple, uh, and it's not going to be short. And with that, <laughs> it's all yours. Thank you, Bill. Anthony, you've become one of the uh, biggest boosters for the idea of the U.S.-Swiss free trade agreement here in Washington uh, these days. Uh, what do you think about the discussion so far? 
I think it's been fantastic, very uh, you know, informative and forward-looking. I appreciate especially uh, Bill's, what I'll say, three C's comment, candid, constructive, cautious pessimism. I welcome that. I think you laid out every details there. But I want to begin, since we are gathering here at the Heritage Foundation, and the Heritage Foundation, some of you are visiting first time. So Heritage Foundation, as in many other organizations, and especially think tank in Washington, D.C., we have a vision and mission. We have a vision. We want to build an America where freedom, opportunity, prosperity, and civil society flourish. And we have a mission. Our mission is to formulate and promote policies based on limited government, free enterprise, individual liberty, and strong national defense. Why do I remind you of mission and the vision of the Heritage Foundation? Because it's not just for America, this vision and mission. I think we share, to a large extent, this vision and mission, freedom, opportunity, prosperity, and civil society, limited government, individual liberty, free enterprise, strong national defense. We share that those principled values with Switzerland. Now, let's take half step back at least. July 31, 2018, about a year and a half ago, this is a something called Issue Brief, our policy paper by the Heritage Foundation. I'm honored, I'm delighted to be here, Anthony Kim, Terry Miller, Edwin J. Fulner, PhD, who was uh, the former president and founder of the Heritage Foundation. Why did we do this? Nobody asked to do this. Nobody paid us to do this. We didn't have like, you know, okay, let's have some wishful thinking discussion. No, we saw something we can kind of formulate and promote. Because if you look at the, uh, the earlier trade document by the Trump administration and the national security strategy paper, two words caught my eyes. United States will be pursuing bilateral trade deals with like-minded and willing partners. That kind of made me think about, then here we go, Switzerland. Fine, 13, 14 years ago, we didn't make it, but that's not the end of the story. This is a new global environment, new, evolving, chaotic, turbulent trading environment. The goal is we want to pursue high-quality, 21st century version, very much different in a way, in terms of uh, the, the, the depth and width, in terms of what we can talk about and negotiate with like-minded and willing partners. That's why with this paper, again, July 31, 2018. Now, I have nothing new to tell you. You know everything probably I know too, but I just want to quickly remind you what happened, what has happened since July 31 last year, 2018. About a year ago, December last year, United States and Switzerland, we signed MOU presenting three secretaries of the United States, Secretary of Commerce, Education, and Labor, and Ivanka Trump as well. It's a one fantastic sign of vibrant U.S.-Swiss relationship. Number two, look at U.S. trade policy in general. USMCA, US-Korea FTA was done. Although USMCA, we are still trying to see what's going to happen. U.S.-Japan trade. Despite the turbulence, things are moving bit by bit. Switzerland, in the meantime, you completed a trade agreement with Mercosur. This is something new. Previously, you guys didn't want to do this because of this and that, and mainly agricultural sector. 
Now you signed it. Now you're waiting for the ratification of it. And I see that's a very positive development. Number four, both countries, President of the United States, President of the Switzerland, Federation of Switzerland, they met in the White House. Long time, that didn't happen, but it happened this year. And Secretary Pompeo visited Switzerland. I'm talking about a lot of, you know, interaction here. Do you think they just had a handshake and talking about some nice weather and nice chocolate and all that? They've been talking about this behind the scene. Well, it's one thing they talk about how they move things forward. That's a different matter. But what I'm conveying to you is there has been talks, more than one talk. And number six, that's basically the rounds of discussions between Bern and Washington, D.C., how to begin, where to begin, what to begin. And I think the common understanding here, as far as I understand is, everything is on the table once again. They do not want to have something to carve out. Let's talk about things. I think that's the general mood here. And since we are hosting our Ebonier Swiss good friend of the heritage, they published this report, win-win. And also, following that, our ambassador to Switzerland, Ambassador Ed McMullen, one of the vocal advocates of this U.S.-Swiss FTA project, he's been very proactive. And he, in fact, he happens to be in the United States this week. He's uh, currently coming down from New York City to Washington to have another rounds of uh, meetings. And we'll see. I don't have, obviously, full details. But what I'm conveying to you, once again, people are talking about. And how we go from here to next level, I think that's the big question. Last but not least, in Congress, there has been a letter circulated, signed by both members of Congress, Democrats and Republicans, 20-some members advocating U.S.-Swiss FTA. To me, these are all positive variables. And I think that, you know, obviously the window opportunity is not wide, but if you ask me today's title, do we have the case for a U.S.-Swiss FTA? I humbly suggest I think we do have it. And also, as reflected by Bill's very candid, constructive, cautious pessimism, I think we probably have a lot of quiet supporters for this U.S.-Swiss FTA. Because my bottom line is, after all, this is really a, an agreement between like-minded, willing partners, how to advance rules-based free trade. This is not about manage trade. So if you ask me, hey, it's got to be comprehensive, I completely agree. We've got to talk about agricultural sector. We've got to make it comprehensive. But how comprehensive in terms of, again, depth and width? I think that's where we need to focus on. That's why I think the two countries, again, like-minded, willing countries, we can be innovative in terms of how move things forward. So my bottom line, once again, I think we can inject a new momentum going forward. Again, the window of opportunity is not big, but we may, we may get into what we want to do. Again, I think you mentioned, Bill, it's not going to be overnight, one week, one month process, but I think that we still have a strong case to make, and I think that's why we are here to talk about this very issue. So a lot more to come. That's what I'll say. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Anthony. Um, I want to give a chance for you in the audience to participate in the discussion. If you have a question, please raise your hand, and um, we'd ask that you identify yourself and, and uh, limit yourself to a question rather than uh, too much of a statement. 
Uh, but, but while you're formulating uh, what your questions or comments might be, I want to turn the discussion back to Patrick for a minute. Um, then I also have a question for the ambassador. Um, for Patrick, I would say one of your recommendations was for a uh, lean uh, or stripped-down agreement, and we've heard some discussion of that now from, the, from a couple of the panelists. Why did you decide to go that route? Uh, do you think it's consistent with WTO obligations? Um, well, why, why, um, why the stripped-down version? Well, I, I I didn't study law, so uh, I I cannot answer if it is uh, or would be compliant uh, to WTO rules. Uh, I just believe we 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 sh shouldn't look at it totally comprehensive, going very deep, uh, covering everything, uh, and 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 begin with that discussion. I just believe um, this would actually destroy part of the momentum that we ha now have. We should really focus on, on uh, sectors, on, on products, on tariffs um, that are of common interest, of common interest meaning both countries can win on this. And uh, just going the bold approach of a very comprehensive agreement, again, probably would destroy uh, first negotiations and uh, we, we wouldn't move forward. I really want to, would like to see this thing moving forward and so, so why not starting from a smaller basis and later expand that? Yeah, thanks. Uh, Ambassador, for you, can we solve the regulatory problem uh, that Bill raised? Uh, these different kinds of approaches to regulations, health, safety, all kinds of, um, of different regulatory processes. Uh, the EU and the United States are quite different in this regard. And Switzerland, um, for understandable reasons, has tended to throw in its lot with the EU at this point. Uh, can, can this be reconciled? It, it can be reconciled if we choose to go down the path of a typical Swiss compromise between the two countries. Of course, if the attitude is it's us or it's them, let's face it, we are, we are a very small country, a big economy, but a small country in the middle of a 500 million people economy and continent. If, if the choice is between abiding by either the regulations of one or the other, of course, most, most certainly we will have no choice but to stick with the EU regulations because they remain a, a, the, the main market and will remain so for, for, for the future. Um, if we decide to go in a more pragmatic way about the mutual recognition of the value of the different systems, because in the end we are—I mean—we are all developed economies. We all have uh, quite developed and, and 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 pragmatic and in, in intelligent regulatory systems. If we, if we manage to find a way to to accommodate both in a very, as I said, in a very Swiss way, then it's doable. It's certainly doable, but it's not going to be a, a, a piece of cake. I totally agree. I'm aware that that's that's probably one of the big landmines that we are, we, are, we are facing, but it's doable. Thank you. Audience, any questions? Uh, yes, right here. Do we have a microphone? I thought we had we a do, microphone. Hi, Jean-Combe Delalleux. I work for the Tribune de Genève. It's a daily paper in Switzerland. Um, how likely is it that Switzerland might be able to jump ahead of the line, like uh, ahead of U the UK and the EU? Like uh, there was 
when uh, the President Trump just said like that U.S.-China trade negotiations might have to wait until after 2020, the, the elections. Uh, do you believe uh, Switzerland can do it? And also, what does uh, Switzerland have to offer? Uh, because uh, the Trump administration is very is is big on delivering st stuff to voters in, in election year, and they've been trying this with the the farmers uh, and with the U.S. Uh, China trade agreement. So, what could uh, Switzerland do? <laughs> we, we've just divided up the question. Um, I think we've uh, the ambassador and I have agreed. It's not very hard to jump in line ahead of the EU. <laughs> <laughs> they are they are much more stuck uh, on, on the agriculture issue. And there's a, there's a very different public opinion situation there. I, this is, I could do a very long answer on this, and I'll, I'll, I'll not do that. But if you look at the history of TTIP, the trade, Transatlantic Trade Investment Partnership, uh, I think that it always had more problems in Europe than it had in the United States, partly because our, our trade skeptics were too busy opposing TPP. But uh, it still would have been a, a more popular agreement. Uh, uh, there's a lot of people in, in the EU that believe uh, a trade agreement with the United States would be a giant regulatory downgrade, um, which they don't support. Uh, getting ahead of them would not be difficult. Um, uh, getting ahead of the UK is really driven by the UK's timetable, not the Americans' timetable. Um, that's a negotiation. I mean, you can have informal conversations with anybody anytime. We could be doing that with Switzerland today, actually. But uh, once you want to have a formal agreement, you can't start that until they've left the, the EU. And that depends on some things that haven't entirely happened yet, um, including their transition period out, even if they leave at the end of January, which I think is the current date. Uh, so th that, that drives that train. It's not American policy that will drive that train. Uh, and it's entirely possible that if the, the US administration wants to move quickly with Switzerland, uh, they could begin sooner. Uh, and then whether they could wrap up sooner, of course, would depend on, on how the talks go. And maybe to the question, what can Switzerland bring? Now uh, the time has come again for some bragging, but uh, sorry. Um, we, we remain and we have been consistently over the last few years the biggest R&D investor in the American economy. That is something that one has to realize. A country the size of two blocks in New York is the biggest R&D investor in this, in, in, on, in, in this giant country. Now, the Swiss being who they are, they believe in predictability. Our investors believe in markets that are predictable, where rules are established and whatever. And as, as, as Patrick actually rightly pointed out, we've made our calculations how much no, the increase would be of investments on both sides of the Atlantic in case that we would have a regulatory a regulatory framework, like a, like like a free trade agreement. Now now uh, it's another it's another half uh, uh, a year of Swiss GDP being invested in the in the U.S. economy uh, for the next ten years with actually a ten tendency going upwards. And a lot of this money going into, into R&D, as soon as we establish a, a, a clear framework, we know we can trust the American markets for, for a few decades. We, have, we really have this, this agreement. It creates, it creates a positive atmosphere that will uh, also um, in, instill some sort of confidence. They already are very confident, obviously, the Swiss investors, but even more confidence into, into the American markets. I think um, we can 
increase the already very impressive contribution that Switzerland is making to the U.S. economy, and that's the goal. Uh, just quickly, uh, two comments, basically. I, I just want to remind you what we have ahead of us. Basically, December and January, I specify those two months because, like I said, you know, Ambassador McMullen is in the United States. He's going to have a number of meetings. And as you know, uh, President Trump and large delegation will go to Davos uh, next year for January. And in between, we have, uh, you know, UK, you know, elections and politics going on. So... I think, you know, nobody can predict it exactly how it's going to be turning out. But I think that, as Bill kind of alluded, I, I think we have a fairly, you know, reasonable chance. We may see something completely kind of new and unexpected situation, which is U.S.-U.K. cannot move forward because of the ongoing Brexit saga. And I think the Swiss becomes, again, very attractive uh, option. And I'm not expecting that, you know, during the Davos meeting, say there's a side bilateral meeting between United States and Swiss, they're going to announce some kind of formal start of the negotiation. That'll be a bit hard to expect it because of the limited time from now and then. And then because of your system, you now have expect a new president of the uh, Federation of Switzerland. So there will be new people, new dynamic. But I think nonetheless, we have some good ingredients to look for. Another question in the back. Hello, uh, I'm Gaspar Kuhn for Swiss TV. Uh, just a question, maybe for the optimistics on uh, on the role of parliaments uh, in Switzerland. The, the Green Party just had a, a big success. I mean, they, they're not a majority, but they have a, a, a better share of the parliament now, a bigger share. And uh, and here the Congress is not maybe in favor of this administration, and they might not give a free pass to an, an FTA. Uh, so, uh, how what, what what is your view on that? What, what could parliaments do to such a, a deal, even if you make the deal uh, at the administration's level, uh, when it goes through parliament, it might be a bit more tricky. It, it all depends how the deal is set up. If we operate with quotas for high-quality products from the United States, and there are many, and they fulfill all the requirements. Uh, um, uh, wh how are you calling the chicken? You know the chicken, the, the cl cl chlorinated chicken. The, the chlorinated chicken certainly do not fulfill <clears throat> the requirements uh, of, of uh, the Swiss population and um, probably not of this parliament. But um, uh, now and again, the consumer market in Switzerland has demonstrated that people are willing to pay a very high price for, fair, for very high quality products. And I can think of some, you know, beefs from uh, Wisconsin and another um, a couple of places that are exactly, they, they, they totally fulfill the requirements in terms of sustainability and whatever, ecology. They're exactly what the Swiss market is, 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 is looking for. They are very expensive, so it's a big benefit for the American economy. We will have to work on the way we devise the quotas. Of course, if the quotas is, is, are, are, are about importing hundreds of thousands of tons of chlorinated chicken, uh, we are not going anywhere. But there is there is a way to deal with that, and also to 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 try and 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 um, work on the quality, not only the quantity. Of course, there will be the quantity, but also on the quality of the American products we we we, we do import, and that's doable, I think. Um, I just would like to add a little bit to that. Uh, Switzerland actually just signed a free trade agreement with Indonesia. And it's, uh, I believe, for the first time that uh, 
Swiss diplomats included a chapter on sustainability. It was on palm oil um, mainly. So this might also be a a way forward for Switzerland actually to also um, satisfy the the, the needs of of the ones now being elected to the Swiss parliament. I know that uh, you know there's evolving new dynamics in Bern. You know your your Swiss politics, but you know I'll leave it up to you and other professionals here. But coming from Washington, I think what we are seeing today in terms of U.S. trade policy, it may be a blessing in disguise because it's so much about unexpected, sudden, you know, acute protectionist kind of tools we are deploying, and. Surprisingly, I think a lot more people now uh, look for the opportunity to advance free trade. And I think that we will have a probably reasonably high support for this potential U.S.-Swiss FTA because, again, the bottom line is this is a different. This is a different from other FTAs that the United States has been pursuing. We have about 14, 15 FTAs. This is, again, among you know two most advanced economies. This is not necessarily about market expansion, if I may. This is not about that. This is more about high-quality deal. So I think we'll probably have a reasonably good support from Congress. Uh, Anthony, if, if current U.S. trade policy is a blessing in disguise, I guess I just wish that the, the disguise was a little less profound. What <laughs> <laughs> uh, a question down here in the front. My name is Felix Erhard. I'm part of the Avenir Swiss delegation. In the current FTA between the US, Canada, and Mexico, there is Article 32.10, the non-market economy clause, i.e. China. Now, Switzerland has an FTA with China, which needs to be updated at some stage. Question to Anthony and Bill, will Switzerland have to make a choice? I think. The short answer, I think, is no. Uh, I mean, it depends on what our administration insists on. I think the way that, if I recall correctly, the way that's phrased, uh, it's prospective and relates to negotiations that if you enter into them, uh, if you were to enter into them later on, it would provide a cause for us to withdraw. Uh, Since you've already concluded it, uh, it's moot uh, and would not, I think, block a, a bilateral negotiation here. I suppose the U.S. could insist that you, you that you cancel it. That would be a, an odd thing for the United States to insist on, and it would, and it would be an odd thing for the, the Swiss government to agree to. But I, other countries have been in a similar situation and haven't worried about it. Uh, and I don't. And plus, you know, if, if you think about it in practical terms, um, all these agreements conclu- include another clause, another clause that gives. Uh, all the parties the, the right to withdraw at any point uh, with notice for any reason. So it doesn't add a lot of weight, you know, to to the to the uh, rights that the parties have. I, w- I wouldn't worry about it. You know, I've been thinking about that angle, very specific angle you question. Uh, you know, I have this tendency of overthinking. I think my boss, Ambassador Miller, knows about it. If we start getting into that route, I mean, now I'm thinking, how about technology? How about 5G? You know, how about your ongoing things with, uh, you know, a company in China and blah, blah, blah. So I don't know. But what I'll say is this. Swiss has an FTA, not only with China, but you have an FTA with Japan. But in my view, Swiss FTAs with China and Japan, they are not so much high quality. I mean, that's a very nice diplomatic, okay, let's open up our markets. You open up yours. 
will export wine, cheese, will export yours. What we are trying to make here, again, we are talking about the United States of America and Switzerland. This is a really different, high-quality uh, FTA we are trying to pursue. Otherwise, I think we don't want to make it as one of those FTAs. We want to really make it high-quality, rules-based free trade deal with Switzerland. Um, one more question, but quick, please, because I've been told we're out of time. Hi, I'm Peggy Oshowski. I'm a congressional uh, journalist for the Hispanic Outlook. Um, you talked about uh, uh, enforcement and regulation. Is uh, bilateral agreements that you're talking about, are those easier to regulate and enforce than uh, the multilateral ones of EU, et cetera? Well, that's what Ambassador Lighthizer says. Uh, and that's what Ambassador Lighthizer says, that they're, they're, they're easy to, uh, easier to enforce. I think uh, if, you're a big if you're a big country and your agreement is with a small country, uh, enforcement is not usually an issue. Uh, you throw your weight around. Uh, and I think that's been the premise of, of current American policy. Um, I personally don't think that there's anything inherent in a bilateral agreement that makes it easier to deal with. Uh, than a regional or, or multilateral agreement. I think TPP, had we entered it, would have been uh, enforceable. Uh, and I don't think it would have been less enforceable than, uh, than bilaterals. Okay, that's going to have to be the last word. Uh, we've had a good discussion. Thanks to the panelists. Please join me in thanking the panelists.